0: Want to go ahead and read the thing
1: indianola texas is as pretty and peaceful of a ghost town as anyone could hope to find lying on the shore of matagorda bay in the sheltered spot some 15 miles from the gulf of mexico today it's little more than a sight marker and a few monuments hinting at the glory days of the mid-19th century back then indianola was a wealthy port city the second largest harbor in texas The first camels in Texas landed here, so did immigrants, tourists, and a plethora of goods headed to every corner of the United States. And, of course, money, which translated into a bustling downtown and a grand county courthouse. In September of 1875, however, Indianola's rising fortunes were halted by a hurricane that pulled the town apart in a matter of hours. The storm surge destroyed two lighthouses, washed a pair of schooners two miles inland, and filled an enormous temporary lake in the prairie on the other side of town to a depth of 12 feet. It also caused the loss of 15,000 head of livestock and the deaths of nearly a quarter of Indianola's residents. The survivors chose to rebuild and invested in new piers, churches, and lighthouses with a plan to make Indianola even finer a place than it was before the hurricane. However, when a second storm came in 1886, followed by a fire that burned nearly all the remaining buildings, including the brand new weather station, to the ground, the residents recognized that despite the protection of the barrier islands in the bay, the site simply wasn't safe. With the closure of the post office and the courthouse, Indianola was abandoned in 1886 and allowed to erode into the sand and tides. Today, the remains of the once-thriving downtown is underwater, and if Indianola is known at all outside the Gulf Coast, it's as a cautionary tale against sighting your city too low and too close to the water. The story of Indianola is a lesson that Galveston, located some 100 miles up the coast and right on the Gulf... Ought to have taken seriously in the last few years of the 19th century. But for a variety of reasons, none of them good, they did not. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the 1900 Galveston Hurricane.
0: Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, your host for this episode.
1: And I'm her brother Greg, co-host for this episode.
0: Sources for today's episode include the book Isaac's Storm, A Man, A Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in History by Eric Larson. And... The Great Galveston Disaster, containing a full and thrilling account of the most appalling calamity of modern times by Paul Lester, 1901 was the publication date on that. Is that in case one you of can those tell by the title?
1: Yeah, I was going to say that's one of those fun everything you need to know is in the title books. Yep,
0: you know what cool. you're getting. Cool, cool, cool. We are traveling today to Galveston, Texas, which is a beautiful little city on a barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico. This island has been used for humans for the past seven thousand years, at least. The Karankawa and the Atapacan tribes used the island for fishing and seasonal living. Uh, they stayed inland for the storm seasons. Archaeologists Smart. believe. Yeah. That's that's a that's a we good will move. We'll see why. Yeah. And in 1816, which seems late to be starting up a pirate stronghold. <laughs> The pirates Louis-Michel Ori and later Jean Lafitte used the island as a pirate stronghold. Excellent. Yeah, they only had it for a few years. So in 1821, the United States Navy cleared out the pirates and the Republic of Texas began developing the island as a port city. Okay. By 1839, when the city of Galveston was officially chartered, it was already a major port for shipping and immigration. Do you know anything about Galveston?
1: um not really no,
0: so Galveston has had a different culture and style from the mainland um almost from the beginning, for example, cool. unlike much of mainland Texas, the island was opposed to slavery. oh although excellent. there were enslaved people living on the island, and they sided with the Union during the Civil War, which, as you can imagine,
1: <laughs> caused Whoa.
0: hurt feelings
1: i wow, I had no idea so 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 Texas had their own like mini American civil war, just Galveston against the rest of the uh, state.
0: Yeah. And Galveston was tiny at that point. I think only a few thousand people were living there. So it wasn't a huge deal. Sure. Uh, But I'm telling you about that. So I can tell you that in 1865, weeks after the end of the war and years after the emancipation proclamation. Yeah. The enslaved people on Galveston Island were formally informed of their freedom. And that, is an event that is now celebrated as Juneteenth.
1: Oh, go Galveston!
0: Ah, uh, here's some more superlatives. Okay. Galveston really thrived after the end of the Civil War. They became the largest port on the Gulf after New Orleans.
1: I was going to say New Orleans, but yeah, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> They're like a
0: a mini New Orleans. Cool. Um, So they built some spectacular buildings. And I think the only thing that keeps it mini is the size of the island. It's about a mile and a half across, six miles long. There's just not any space to build your own New Orleans.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Cool. Um, So they built some spectacular buildings, including an opera house. Ah. (laughs) They also have a YMCA, two public high schools, a university, and an enormous Catholic orphanage right on the beach. Uh Uh-huh. They installed telegraph and telephone lines, and they were early adopters of electricity. They had their own power plant by 1883.
2: That's cool.
0: It's pretty wild, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Galveston seems like a a neat place to be.
0: They're on the cutting edge. Yeah. Uh, By 1900, 37,000 people lived in Galveston, making it a fairly good-sized city.
1: On, what did you say it was, like one by six miles?
0: Yeah, (laughs) teeny-weeny.
1: Yikes. Okay.
0: Aside from the thirty-six thousand people who live there permanently full time, uh, thousands more are visiting in the summer by rail. So they have this very nice long railway bridge, gorgeous beaches, hotels, right? Ooh. So people are streaming out here by the thousands for the beach resorts, the fresh air, the Gulf water,
2: which is sure clear sure. and beautiful. Cool.
0: So even when the city's only a few years out of the kind of post Civil War reconstruction, there's enough money and civic pride to care about the city's kind of municipal safety, right? Okay. So in eighteen eighty five, a fire devastated an entire neighborhood and it was made much worse by the wind coming off the gulf. Because okay. remember yeah. that would do it. It's a barrier island. There's nothing protecting it from the open water.
2: Right.
1: Right.
0: Uh, The fire jumped from building to building because people were using (sighs) cedar shingles
1: for roofing. Yeah, that would do it.
0: Yeah, it's just real flammable and a good wind plus cedar shingles.
1: But they look so nice.
0: They look great. Um, They're very (laughs) (laughs) eco-friendly.
1: But they burn real good, folks. Yeah, there's always
0: a con. There's always a con to the pro. All right,
2: Um, all right. So
0: at this point, the city begins requiring residential buildings to use slate roofs instead. Okay. Which gives it kind of a distinct architectural flair. Sure. And it cuts down on both the amount of fires and the spread of fires in the city. And these are mostly wooden buildings. So (laughs) that's an important point. Okay. In the late 1890s, the city, you know, feels like they're ahead of the fire problem. They start talking about building a seawall. Oh, okay. Now, if you visit Galveston today, one of the first things you notice about the city is the enormous and very thick rock and concrete seawall that protects the city from the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. But although the native inhabitants or the former residents of Indianola or Mm -hmm. the pirates uh, could have told Galveston all about what a a gulf storm can do to a low-lying island like Galveston, which is only eight feet above sea level at its highest point.
1: Whoa, okay. Yeah, that doesn't seem super well thought out, everybody.
0: (laughs) So a seawall is a great idea.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, The municipal government of the 1890s did not seem especially concerned. Okay. So a big part of this unconcern is the fact that Galveston had never experienced a major storm. But they do have floods. They have rainstorms and floods. Okay. Um, So the buildings and the streets around the waterfront area, are built to withstand about three feet of water.
2: Okay.
0: Um, And they manage this through high curbs. Some streets have three-foot high curbs. And some of the beachfront houses are up on stilts.
2: Okay. Which is pretty
0: typical of, like, a beach town.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Uh, Another part of the unconcern was that by 1890, Galveston has its own weather station and its own weather expert. So the assumption is, first, that they're going to get plenty of warning. Okay. And second, that it is impossible for a storm to hit Galveston.
1: And we all love it when we decide that, don't we?
0: So at this time, quick sidebar for weather forecasting. Sure. uh, In the 1890s, you know... Weather forecasting was not a science. I mean, you could argue it's not really
2: they were super they were reliable
0: uh, now.
1: Oh, it's much more reliable than it was, I believe, in the eighteen nineties. Sure. These were serious people doing their best. Can we can we put that up?
0: We can say they standardized their training. Um oh, and they had excellent. access to some instruments.
2: Okay. Okay.
0: So the closest thing that the government has to official meteorological training is through the mm-hmm. U.S. Army's Signal Corps. Okay. And they're okay. responsible for the Army's communication work, including, like, weather alerts and telegraph operation. So in 1885, the Signal Corps trained a man named Isaac Klein to forecast the weather. Okay. And he became so good at it that when the Weather Bureau was formally founded mm-hmm. in 1889... He was sent to Galveston to establish a weather station there. Ooh. Now, what they're thinking is that they're going to get great weather reports from the Gulf, from Galveston, just from its position.
1: Right, right. That makes sense.
0: Um, So this is immediately kind of an important little station. It's right in the downtown. It's in a building called the Levee Building, which is made out of stone. I think it's three or four stories high, so it's one of the more impressive buildings of Galveston. So in 1891, Isaac Klein writes an article for the paper the Galveston Tribune, okay. in which he argued that Galveston's position on the Gulf and the prevailing wind and tides are going to protect it from storms like the one that wiped out Indianola. The quote from the article that you will want to remember, because it uh-huh. played a big part in convincing Galveston not to prioritize a seawall,
1: Oh, I already hate this. Yep. Is, is this,
0: quote, it would be impossible for any cyclone to create a storm wave which could materially injure the city.
1: That is quite a statement. Wow.
0: So Isaac is in a unique position here. So he sees himself as both an expert meteorologist. Yeah. And to be Uh fair, he's probably one of the best trained meteorologists in the U.S. at this time.
1: And we've all been there. We've all we've all you know graduated from college and thought we knew what was going on.
0: Yeah. That's the other part of this. He's a young person when
1: he
2: does this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's not from Galveston. And he's only lived there for a few years. He's about 23, 24 years old when he writes this in the paper. Okay. And he's only in his 30s by 1900. So he is not, by all accounts, a humble person at this point.
1: (laughs) Well. Why should he
0: be? He's one of the prominent citizens. Um, Sure. People listen to him about the weather. He's wealthy. He has a huge, fancy, slate-roofed new house.
1: He hasn't been wrong yet. (laughs)
0: okay so it's not an exact science i'm sure he's been wrong
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: um
1: wow okay yeah it would be impossible
0: for any cyclone to create (sighs) a storm wave which could materially injure the city that's where that's coming from
1: just don't say stuff like that you just know i mean there's 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 tempting fate there's Mm -hmm. man plans god laughs Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of things that say don't make statements like that
0: just not a good idea
1: it's just not yeah yeah it's a poor choice of words
0: uh so he does have instruments to help him out (laughs) so his main tools to predict the weather are the barometer which measures air pressure and the thermometer which measures air (laughs) temperature okay sorry i had to write that out really carefully otherwise it turns into the worst tongue twister
2: okay okay
0: um and they can also measure wind speed up to a point using an instrument called an anemometer
1: anemometer
0: anemometer
1: yep i i dig it completely i'm 100 percent here for an anemometer
0: it's got like a bowl on the end of an arm and it whips around really fast when the wind yeah. blows and then yeah, yeah. something inside it measures out the wind speed
1: yeah I've, I've seen some of those on top of like museums and, and yeah they're uh, very cool and stuff they're very cool
0: uh So tides and ocean water temperature measurements are a lot less accurate, and they're not pulling on historical data the way we are now. Right. So that's kind of a little bit
1: fuzzy. So that's going to be a thing.
0: <laughs> but Isaac has this on his side, the invention of the telegraph and the telephone. So he can get distant readings communicated to him very quickly. Pretty quickly.
1: Okay. Okay. I feel like... I- I feel like this guy probably had like great hair as well. You know what I mean? Like he's he had that one kind of, those of mustaches. Yes, there mm. it is. That's what I needed. That's the that's the color I needed right there. And I he had beautiful
0: suits. Ah. Very very nice suits. All right, all right. So that brings us to late August of nineteen hundred. Okay. And this is when a tropical storm or a weak cyclone. So the observation could be either. It's a 15-mile-per-hour wind and a distant wall of clouds. Okay. And that is observed by a ship off the coast of Cape Verde. Okay. Because the ship has the ability to communicate long distances, this news of the storm travels ahead of the storm. So there's a few days warning when it reaches the Dominican Republic on September 2nd. But it's still a baby storm, and it weakens further as it enters the Caribbean. Okay. Did you know the United States were occupying Cuba at this time? I did know that, actually. Okay. The U.S. has a (laughs) weather station there. Yeah, yeah. And they have these um, signal corps guys, so mainland American weather, quote-unquote, experts. Yep. Um, They are observing the weather, and they're informing the Weather Bureau in Washington about this storm. And what they tell Washington is that the storm is a rapidly dissipating tropical storm.
1: Oh. Okay. However As opposed to a rapidly growing in strength coming right at Galveston storm. Okay. So
0: Cuba has its own weather stations. Okay. Uh the observers there are inarguably better at predicting <laughs> storms. Uh-huh. And their observers did not agree with the Americans. Uh-huh. They saw a rapidly strengthening storm and they saw it headed in the opposite direction. Okay. However, The U.S. is occupying Cuba. They have placed a ban that -hmm. prevents Cuban weather service from warning either the U.S. government or anyone on the Gulf Coast, Uh which is where the Cuban observers predict that the storm is going to head after it soaks up all that warm Gulf of Mexico ocean water and gains a tremendous amount of energy. Yeah. It's not good. We don't love that.
1: No, I mean, that's that. Yeah.
0: So the official report, the one that was cabled to Washington and then Galveston, was this. A storm of moderate intensity, parentheses, not a hurricane, was central this morning, east by south of Santo Domingo, end quote. Okay. So the storm of moderate intensity brings torrential rainfall and wind damage to Cuba, Jamaica, South Florida, as it rolls up the Caribbean into the Gulf. Sure, And in one sense, the Weather Bureau was correct. It was not a hurricane, (laughs) end parentheses, until it rolled into the Gulf of Mexico on September 6th and began soaking up all that warm water and wind energy that it can get its hands on. And now it's moving fast. So when it's first observed, the storm was moving 8 to 10 miles per hour. Now it's roaring across the Gulf of Mexico, heading straight for the barrier islands off Texas. And nobody in Galveston, including Isaac Klein, the weather expert, right. the one person who should know, nobody knows it's coming. As okay. good as Isaac Klein is, he's depending on accurate information from the Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C., which I had to look this up. 1,500 yeah. miles away, Greg.
1: Yeah. Not yeah, a near they're, neighbor. They're not exactly sitting there watching the coastline. Yeah. Doesn't
0: have a lot of skin in this game.
1: Not so much. You will.
0: So on this particular morning, the Weather Bureau had used observations from Florida and from the U.S. observers in Cuba okay. to decide that the storm was heading east, not west, into the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. Now that's a big mistake. <laughs>
1: that's a, that's a, we, we call that one a swing and a miss, kids. Uh,
0: that's a swing, a miss, and then hitting yourself in the face with the bat.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: This is not a good agency at this point right. the weather bureau right um and this is one of their big this is one of the big reasons that they're later get investigated that they get,
2: yeah okay
0: as they should have been this is a major major mistake yeah, so as geez. far as anyone on galveston can see the weather in galveston is perfect that oh, friday no. okay. right it's hot sunny clear skies however however The observers at the Galveston weather station couldn't help but notice that even though the weather looks perfect, the barometer starts doing something funny. And I think the tendency (sighs) that humans have when instruments don't match up to our observations is to assume that there's something wrong with the instrument.
1: With the instruments. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And this might be why there is no immediate kind of jump to declare an emergency and and try and evacuate. So the pressure is rapidly falling in the barometer, okay. but the air temperature is actually rising. So it starts out around 90 degrees, and this has been a hot summer, and it just keeps edging up. So those things put together indicate that a major storm was hours away. Oh, gosh. Even though the weather looks perfect, right? If you go to the beach and looked over the gulf at dawn on the morning of September 8th, the sky was clear. There's a little wind, and the water's rough. But nobody issues any kind of warning at this time, and this is the time when everybody should have been trying to get off the island. Okay, so the weather report in that morning's paper read, quote, the early indications are that the storm will probably strike land somewhere east of Texas and make its way across land westerly. The weather bureau officials do not anticipate any dangerous disturbance, although they are not in a position to judge just what degree the storm may reach or develop when it strikes Texas. End quote. Okay. So they have the storm possibly coming over the next few days. And again, it's a storm, not a hurricane. Right. Right. Um, And they have it coming from the wrong direction. They have it coming from the mainland. Yeah. So the Galveston Tribune remarked on the weather in an editorial. (laughs) Quote, There have been high waters before, when the effect was mainly discomfort and the destruction of fences. Physical geographers argue plausibly, with the support of experience, that the high water records have been the maximum of possibility, because the beach at Galveston slopes so gently to the ocean depths that destructive waves will be broken and their force dissipated before reaching the shore. An inundation might be wasteful and damaging, to be sure, but there is no possibility of serious loss of life. End quote.
1: There's that that unfounded confidence
0: again. Uh, Notice also that in the editorial, we're still not using the word hurricane. Right. Don't want to start a panic. Right.
1: Because hurricanes would be bad.
0: Yes, we don't want hurricanes. We don't want that, no.
1: The best way to avoid a hurricane is to just not call it a hurricane, folks. It's
0: when we start using the H word that it gets (laughs) bad.
1: It's not a hurricane till we say it's a hurricane.
0: <sighs>
1: yeah, this is all this is all bad. I hate it all. Thank you.
0: This is so typical of the disasters that we discuss. We have this like blatant disregard for you know, warnings, weather warnings. Yep. Um we have this kind of arrogance in the face of a barometer that really shouldn't be doing that. And then we have the press going, "Folks, there is nothing to be worried about." So by mid-morning, on Saturday, September 8th.
2: Yep. The only
0: structure protecting the Gulf side of Galveston, which is a three-foot-high train trestle. Oh, geez. Okay. It's being oh, shaken God. by an increasingly rough surf. Uh-huh. And people in Galveston are beginning to get the sense that all is not well. The sky turns a funny color. This is something a lot of the eyewitnesses talk about. They okay. call it pearly and yellow, which is Ooh. not
1: that is unsettling.
0: what you want to see. Yep. Um, and the birds are behaving strangely. Snakes are coming inland. It's just.
1: <laughs> Everything wild is running for their lives.
0: So people actually start calling the weather station and the staff there assures them there's nothing to worry about.
2: Ah, uh, Yep.
0: But by this time, Isaac must have been getting a little concerned because he walks into the beach facing streets of the business district. So okay. the one street over from his office. Okay. Yep. And he warns the shops there that they might want to prepare for minor flooding. So he suggests that they raise their goods three feet off the floor.
2: Yeah, that ought to
1: do it.
0: And this is around 10 o'clock in sure. the morning of September 8th.
1: Sure. Yeah. The
0: wow. hurricane arrives on Galveston Island just before lunchtime, and okay. it starts with a torrential rainfall. Okay. The streets immediately begin to flood. There's a rising wind one that's strong enough to send those slate roof tiles flying okay, along with branches and other light debris. And almost sure. immediately people are getting hurt. Yeah. The first major casualty of the storm is Ritter's Cafe, which is in the business district and faces onto the beach. And okay. it's doing its regular lunch business when the winds begin to increase steadily, like disturbingly quickly. Ugh. A sudden gust of hurricane strength wind, which is estimated at hundred miles per hour, That hits the cafe a little past 1 o'clock. Without any warning, the wind peels the roof off in one piece, and the building collapses inward. Yep. Galveston has a three-mile-long railroad bridge with a double track that connects it to the mainland, and it's usually pretty busy on a Saturday because that's when people are coming in to get their resort time.
2: Sure, yeah, that makes sense. By around
0: the same time as the hurricane-force winds are coming... The trains are struggling to stay on their tracks. Now, these are steam trains, obviously. They're big, heavy steam trains, and they're on big, heavy bridges. Right. Not only is the water breaking over the top of the trestle, in some places it's flowing right over the rails, eight or ten inches deep. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Even though the track and the bridge is intact, the two o'clock train from Beaumont, Texas, carrying 95 passengers and crew, cannot force its way through the rising water. Okay. So they stopped just past the lighthouse on the mainland side to wait for a ferry. Okay. And there's very poor visibility at this point. The waves and the wind are so high that the ferry can't dock. Jeez. Remember, this is not like the middle of the North Atlantic. This is the Gulf of Mexico, in yeah. a sheltered area.
1: It's a barrier island, yeah.
0: Um it's it's just it had to have been absolutely wild to these people that not only could, they, could the train not keep going, but the ferry can't come to the pier. Jeez. Okay. Okay. The train tries to back up out of the water at this point. Okay. And it stalls when water gets into the engine about a quarter of a mile away from the lighthouse. Okay. At this point, the water is about 12 inches over the tracks, so it's kind of knee Jeez. height on an adult. And it's running fast. But 10 people on the train decided they were going to walk along the trestle through this running water back to the lighthouse. Okay. This is very dangerous. Yes. Six inches of water can knock you off your feet. This is a hurricane. Yeah. And 12 inches of water. Um, So they must have had just an absolutely miserable walk. It's a quarter mile. Um, and the 10 people who choose to leave the train make it to the lighthouse. Oh, okay. The 85 people who stayed aboard the train are yeah. lost when the trestle breaks some hours later. Nobody's sure when. okay. Yep. Okay. At 2.30 in the afternoon, the weather station in Galveston wires the weather bureau, quote, Gulf rising rapidly, half the city underwater, end quote. So the situation has changed. Yeah. Um, But this is the last official communication from Galveston Island, because at 3 o'clock, the island loses communication with the mainland when the telephone lines fail. Okay. When the anemometer blows off the side of the levee building around 5 o'clock in a 110-mile-per-hour wind, Isaac Klein and his brother Joseph, uh, Joseph is one of his observers, they go to Isaac's house to wait out the worst of the weather. Okay. Um, they arrive to find the house full of neighbors and a big argument about whether to shelter in the house, which, remember, has been built for Isaac Klein. So you right. would think it would be nice and sturdy. Okay. Um, and there are other choices to try and evacuate the island, which is obviously a moot point. There's no At way to get out. this point, yeah,
1: there's no way to get out. Yeah.
0: yeah. So Isaac's house is built for a regular storm. Um, And that
1: is not what this is. (laughs) That is
0: not even close to what this is. Jeez. Anyway, it's a moot point because in Isaac's house, they are completely cut off by the rising water, uh, the wind, which is now gusting at 150 miles per hour. Woof. So at 6.30 that evening, the wind, which had been coming from the north, suddenly shifts direction. Okay. As it did, a storm surge estimated at 15 feet in height. Rolls right over Galveston Island. Oh my god. Remember, Galveston Island is only eight feet tall at the tallest point.
2: Yep. Okay. So
0: this surge lifts buildings off their foundations, it collapses other buildings, it rips out trees and telegraph poles. Yep. And it carries away everything you can imagine, including people. It is difficult to imagine experiencing this surge and surviving, but there are eyewitness reports, including Isaac Klein's. Really? Quote. I was standing okay. at my front door, which was partially open, watching the water, which was flowing with a great rapidity from east to west. The sudden rise of four feet brought it above my waist before I could change my position. So what he's talking about is not, you know, a dam breaking or a wave going through. Right. This is the sea washing just washing over. right over it. Yeah. yeah, and it's not a wave. It just, like, rises up and rolls right over. Yep. I saw one report that described it as a dome of water pushed out by the hurricane, (sighs) which is, yeah, it's almost. I hate all of this. Yeah. yeah.
1: That is terrifying.
0: In hurricanes, you know, people often think that the wind and the rain is the most dangerous part. Sure. But for any communities near water, it's this kind of action that the water can take um, in the form of that much energy and that much wind. The, right. s- the storm surge is by far the most dangerous and deadly part of a hurricane. Oh, my gosh. After the surge, the storm passes on to the mainland. It goes over Galveston into the bay, and it climbs right on over Texas. Okay. In Galveston, within minutes, the water begins to recede. So the wind slows down, and the worst of the storm is over by midnight. Okay. But there's no way for the survivors to get help out to the island for about a day and a half, because there are no bridges. Right. Um, there's a six-mile-long raft of debris ringing yep. the island, so you can't just sail a boat there.
2: Right, right. The telephone
0: and the telegraph lines are down, so even communicating what happened doesn't happen for days. And Jeez. the emergency response, when it arrives by raft, is really just limited to body retrieval. There are very few survivors found after Sunday morning. Woof. Whatever you've heard about this storm, it is so much worse.
1: It's worse than, yeah. yeah.
0: Jeez. Um, so footage of the devastation was taken around September 10th by a Kodak film crew. Okay. So they brought cameras onto the island and they filmed houses on their sides, uh, streets that are just full of piles of wood and stone rubble. Like, it doesn't look like anything was ever built here. It looks like a landfill, maybe. It, it's just piles and piles of stuff. Yeah. Um. And there are people in these films. They're walking through the rubble and they just look shell-shocked. They've got their yeah. heads down, they're standing apart. Um. One woman you can see is just wandering in a circle. Jeez. It's just some of the worst disaster footage you have ever seen. So the first part of the rescue effort is to repair the bridge. And okay. when refugees are finally able to leave Galveston on the train. Uh, The people getting off the train are described by a journalist as, quote, the women wear no hats, are unkempt and ill-clad. They look as if haunted, end quote. Wow. After September 8th, the Galveston hurricane is not done yet. What? Nope.
1: No, but we already did this. We don't want more. There's more hurricane? There's more
0: hurricane, yeah. So it's still a Category 4 when it reaches mainland Texas. Okay. And it curves up and over East Texas, the Midwestern United States, and then it parks itself over the Great Lakes and gets a little more juice.
1: Really? Yep. Wait, this thing traveled over like the entirety of the United States? Mm hmm.
0: It goes over Ontario, Newfoundland, and Quebec in Canada. By the time so it this dissipated. This hurricane
1: traversed North America. Has that ever happened?
0: It has, but not a storm this big and powerful. So a wow. lot of times you'll see like a tropical storm kind of lose intensity right, as right, it moves right. up and then maybe yeah. regain intensity or, you know, not dissipate and, completely yeah. before right. it kind of kind and of this like one just kept, out. Just this kept storm, going. Yeah, it's a monster. It is a really, wow. really big and powerful storm. Uh, people died all over the U.S. from this storm. People died in Massachusetts. Okay, uh, 10 people died in Ohio. A couple hundred people died in Newfoundland. By the time it dissipates over the North Atlantic around September 15th.
2: Oh my God.
0: Yeah, this one storm has caused an estimated 8,000 to 12,000 total fatalities, with at least 7,000 of those in Galveston. That's horrifying. Yeah, and that makes it the deadliest weather event in United States history and the eighth deadliest storm to hit Canada. Just... A monster,
2: wow
1: wow it's it's hard to wrap your head around that level of destruction.
0: It truly is, and if you focus only on Galveston, you can see like the immediate impact that it has at its, at its most powerful right This right. is still a monster storm, you know, yeah, hundreds of miles later, just really it's a giant it's giant
1: really, thing. really hard to visualize.
0: Yeah, it's hard for us to visualize because there's no, you know, there's there's no no footage. Yeah, well, sure. There's no radar showing like how it moved across the U.S. We just have these eyewitness reports and these reports from these different weather bureaus. Um, And it's really hard to paint a complete picture the way we're used to seeing hurricanes. Sure, sure. So Isaac Klein, his daughters, and his brother Joseph all survive And they later learned that of the 50 people who had sought shelter in the Klein's house, only a dozen apart from them had made it out. Jeez. That story is repeated throughout the city where whole families are lost. uh, Neighborhoods are so badly damaged. It's often hard to tell where the street of the house of your loved ones was. It's just, you know, buried. Yeah. The Catholic orphanage at the far end of town is gone. Uh, All the nuns and 90 of the children are lost in the storm, and there are only three survivors. The amount of human remains is overwhelming for the living to deal with. So what begins as a mass burial effort um, moves to a burial at sea, and then later becomes a mass burning as time passes and the risk of disease grows. So it takes months to identify some of the missing and remains, and hundreds, maybe thousands of people, are never found at all. Hundreds more are not identified.
2: Okay. So unlike
0: Indianola, the survivors of Galveston chose to rebuild, and they began with. Yeah. You want to guess?
1: Uh, the weather station.
0: <laughs> um, they build a seawall from rock and reinforced concrete, and it rises to a height of eighteen feet, which is three feet higher than the storm surge. Okay. As the seawall is going up, engineers and builders were at the same time raising the city itself. So they were pumping in gravel and sand from the bottom of the bay to support raised buildings and higher streets. So I've seen pictures of this, and it's really, really impressive. So the buildings were just jacked up, and then they would spray gravel and sand in these huge hoses um, and then set the building back down on top. Huh. So the height of the island itself was raised along with the seawall. Cool. Good Um, for them. Yeah, and the houses on the bay side of the island were raised up on higher and sturdier stilts at the same time. Stilts are a really good idea if you're close to the water. Yes. And that is the story of the 1900 Galveston Hurricane.
1: That's, like I said, that's kind of hard to even wrap my head around in terms of that much damage and that much loss of life yep um it's really really hard to to think about i I, i'm wondering if um so you said that the the meteorologist sort of at the center of all of this Mm -hmm. uh he survived this yes did his reputation suffer in any way for it
0: he actually got promoted uh, <laughs> and moved to the New Orleans Bureau yep. he spent the rest of his life well he wrote a memoir um, and he wrote a textbook which is very long, very very boring uh, yeah. unless you love early 20th century meteorology then it's sure. fascinating um, both of those are on the Hathi Trust if you ever want to read them okay. his memoir is mostly about storms Okay. Um, so he talks about the Galveston storm a little bit but not as much as you would think and his thing is that he did not understand what was going on uh, as it was happening. And so okay. he later had to rethink his understanding of tropical storms and hurricanes and cyclones. And okay. that is what his book is about, his his textbook. Okay. Uh, but yeah, he becomes an art dealer <laughs> and he lives to be in his 80s. So. Okay. You know this this event he lost his wife in the storm. okay, and yeah. she had been about to have a child, oh God, um, so it's not that he escaped unscathed
1: unscathed, sure,
0: um, uh, and I think obviously this had to have been deeply traumatic on on a number of levels, but it does not appear to have impacted his career. I think is the sure okay the point here, you would think that. They would have taken away the anemometer and the barometer and the thermometer and told him to do something else with his life. But that is not what happened.
1: Well, here at Relative Disasters, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know.
0: You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters?
1: A very special thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode is brought to you by Suzanne. Suzanne! Who lost the 70,000 BCE spelling bee by putting an extra H in UGG
0: mm.
1: and Honey! Who time traveled back from the year 2886 to experience what a hot dog was, but locked her keys in her time machine and has no way of getting back?
0: Did you hate it when that happens?
1: It's a real hazard. It's a mm. real hazard. Have a backup on you. We do want to thank our patrons who support us on Patreon. You guys help us keep the uh, the podcast ad free. Which we love. Which we love. And if you would like to uh, help us out by throwing a couple bucks our way, again, that is at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon.
0: We appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next episode. What's it going to be?
1: Well uh we have a very special episode coming up next oh uh, that's
0: right we're it's doing almost w- april
1: we're doing weather patterns
0: uh-huh. and
1: uh i am actually taking a road trip i will be headed down to a very small town in tennessee no that ca- experiences wait, wait, wait. Yep.
0: Yeah. you did not run this by corporate before you <laughs> before you planned this out what are do you doing in tennessee
1: well, I am going to be visiting a very small town okay. that has some of the most unique weather patterns on the face of the planet, either because of its geographic location mm-hmm. or because it is haunted by a witch. What? Yep. Uh, on the next episode of Relative Disasters. Uh, hold, hold on, Greg. What? What? What?
0: What's the disaster? I mean, this is this is not what we usually do.
1: So we're talking about... Um, Water spouts that happen on landlocked lakes that okay. are not big enough to support water spouts. Okay. We're talking about sudden 103 degree weather in January that lasts for maybe four to five minutes and then disperses. What? Uh, earthquakes, tornadoes that seem localized enough to smash one house but ignore all the others. Very, very weird weather.
0: Okay. It is absolutely bizarre. I've never heard of this before, but uh, you do you. Gas up the car, (laughs) head out to Tennessee, see what you find. Can't wait to talk to you about that.